All right, Luke mentioned Ohio State, but what about Clyde? All right, that's what I'm talking about. I, I heard the score, last night I heard the score is 34-14, is that right? And Wow, exciting stuff, so heading off to the state championship, so that's cool. As Luke was just saying, we are finishing up our series called Seven, and this last section of Matthew 7 invites you to turn on your device or flip in your Bible to Matthew 7. We're going to pick it up where we left off here last time, which is verse 13. And this passage of Scripture has, contains in it what I think is the scariest verse in the Bible. So are we ready to kind of dig in here a little bit? Okay, well, you're way more excited about Clyde, so let, let's, let's get in this now. <clears throat> Jesus... He goes up to, to preach this Sermon on the Mount. He sits down, which is kind of what they did, and everybody else stood. It's kind of reversed. And he starts teaching. And he teaches with unbelievable tenderness, embracing, he starts that way, he embraces those who felt the least embraceable. But then he, by the time he swings to the end of his message, he teaches with uh, unreserved toughness where he tells us that this sermon, these instructions that he's given us, they're not just a set of suggestions that we can take or leave at our pleasure. That we're to obey them. And as we look at this passage, this ending of the most famous verse in history, it's like an arrow pointed at our hearts. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the great gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus is telling us that everybody, your belief, no matter what it is, is taking you somewhere. Your belief is taking you someplace. And some people will push back and say, hey, well, Kevin, I'm not even religious. I mean, I'm sitting here, but I'm not a religious person. I don't have any strong beliefs. And Jesus is saying, whether you're religious or not, you have some type of faith commitment. And everyone is on a religious path, whether they realize it or not. That's what Jesus is telling us right here. Everyone is on a road that's leading them to one of two different destinations. There are only two roads, Jesus says, and they go to two different places. And the way to God, the one way, it's narrow, it's constricted, it's rugged, and it's not obvious. And no one drifts that way. Because He is the only way. And of course... People in our culture today, they would say, how narrow-minded is that? How can it be? There are good people in other religions. And Jesus says, you're not hearing me. There are no morally pure people. 
There are no good people according to God's standard. We say that because we keep comparing people to other morally flawed people. And not God's true and righteous standard of morality. He continues in verse 15, a verse, one of several verses in this passage that I memorized as a teenager, says this. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. And now here's where it starts getting scary. Are you ready? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And here it is. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Scariest verse. And then Jesus concludes his sermon this way. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who, builds, who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall." And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So here we have this passage. And, and why is this verse 23 that I was pointing out, the scariest verse in the Bible where he says, I never knew you? Well, four reasons. First of all, it's scary because Jesus says many think they are Christians, but they actually are not Christians. According to Jesus, by his own words, we would know that there are millions of people who say they're Christians, but they're not. And they're people who are in churches, even churches like ours. And they will be separated from God for eternity. And so that makes us want, well, how can we know? That brings us to the second reason. It, it's not easy. It's, it's a scary verse because fake Christians are hard to spot. 
That's what Jesus is saying. That's what his parables are teaching us. Because they look like real Christians. He's telling us they look harmless, but their teaching does great damage. False prophets, he's saying, are among the Christian community. False prophets are in Christian churches. False prophets claim to know Christ. And sometimes we hear people saying things like, well, there are many paths to God. False teachers. Only one path leads to God. Or people who say, well, as long as you're spiritually sincere, you'll be okay with God. That's false teaching. But it's not always so obvious. Because even when we teach about faith alone, false teachers do great damage. And that may be some of what's happening in the first century here. Some teach, because it is is faith alone for us to be followers of Christ, that, that we don't have to keep the law, that we're freed from that. And there's some truth to that. We are no longer bound to the entire Old Testament law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. But false teachers take it too far, and they would go with that thought and take it further and say, and therefore, we are not obligated to follow Christ's teachings as believers. They, they will not save us, and they do not matter. And that's wrong. It's true that we can never be saved by doing good. It's true that we, don't, we are not bound by the entirety of the Old Testament law. But we're called to obediently follow Jesus. We're called to love him back. We're called to live out his law of love that he gave us. For example, in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus was talking. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. What's he telling us? Number one commandment. Not different from the Ten Commandments. This is number one commandment. Love God with everything you have. And I think a lot of times we think, well, I I do that. I love God. Do we? Because there's another passage in Scripture in 1 John 5, 3 that, that describes the love for God. It says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep... His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Scripture is teaching us that for us to love God back is to do what God is telling us to do. For us to love God back, we do that in part by obedience to what God has told us to do. It shows up, our obedience, in our lives. And if we claim to be Christians, but we live a lifestyle that's actually rebellious to Jesus, it may seem harmless. But we don't know God. And we're doing great damage, if we're calling ourselves a Christian, to his message and his church. Fake Christians are hard to spot because they not only because they look harmless, but also because they look productive but they don't produce 
good fruit. The scary part about that passage is the people that Jesus says, God will say, depart, I never knew you. These people were involved in, in, they thought they were serving God. They thought they were following Jesus. And they end up separated from God. And we should serve God. We should do what God wants. We should be active in his church. But that's no substitute for loving God in gratitude and obeying him in every area of our life, submitting every area of our life to him, or intending to do that. Because Jesus says good good fruit will prove a true Christian's faith. Third reason, I think it's the scariest verse in the Bible, is because fake Christians are self-deceived. They think they're real Christians. They, they truly believe that. They're surprised at the judgment. They talk back to they're what? But we but we did, but but we said. But we did. They believe in God. But they didn't truly follow God for God. They did their own thing for their own reasons. Maybe they wanted something from God. They said, Lord, Lord, we had our doctrine right. Lord, Lord, we were in ministry. Lord, Lord, we did Christian things. Lord, Lord. We did all the rituals. Lord, Lord, we, we said the sinner's prayer. Lord, Lord, we, we were baptized. Lord, Lord, we, we were confirmed. We served. And I think Jesus is saying, yeah, but you didn't serve me. Because it's so easy for our motives to be off. To be about ourselves. To be about what we can get from God. Complacent Christians think they think it's okay to be uncommitted. Jesus describes them as they say, Lord, Lord, but they do lawlessness. They live for, their, for themselves, doing their own thing, living their own way. And, and when you point it out to them, when you see somebody like that that you're concerned about and you say, hey, don't, don't you see what you're doing here? This is contrary to how Jesus would want you to live. They don't care. Because the way they live is more important to them than Jesus. And you feel like you're spinning your wheels because they don't care. They reserve the right to live their life their own way. They look like they have a strong foundation. But they don't. Snow came early this year, right? Before the summer was over, I, I have a barn behind our house, and I wanted to build a loft in it. And then the snow came, it was the week before Thanksgiving, and then I heard it was, I think it was a Thursday, before, the week before Thanksgiving, and it was like a 50-degree day. Remember that? You probably don't. But anyway, it's a warm day. 
because I was setting these six by six, 16 foot beams to support this. And I'm doing this by myself, which is never a good idea because I really don't know what I'm doing. But anyway, I'm setting these beams and I realized that I need to pour some some concrete in there, some footers to set them right before I start building this whole thing because I don't want it to shift and mess it up. That's my thinking anyway. So I hear there's going to be a warm day on Thursday. So Wednesday night after church, I run to Lowe's. I barely make it before nine o'clock. I buy some concrete. Tim tells me I should get the quick drying stuff. So I grab that stuff and I haul it home. And Thursday morning I get up like at 5 a.m. before the before I needed to be at work and Mixed that and poured it. I had some heaters and I got it in there. And it seems to have actually worked, but I haven't done anything yet, so I'll tell you later. (laughs) Why? Because the whole structure stands on it, right? If you don't get that right, it, it messes up the integrity of the whole thing. Jesus is saying, same with our lives. What's our foundation? If we're not founded on the rock, if we're not founded on Jesus, there will be cracks in the structure of our entire lives. It will show up. When the storms come, it'll then be obvious if it's not right. But if we're on the rock, if our foundation is truly Jesus, then we will want to live for Him in gratitude. And that will shape our entire life. And we will be firm and secure and rock solid in Christ. Not of our own strength, but of His strength. When spiritual identity is determined not by what a person says, but by what they do. And what we do reveals our foundation. It reveals our identity. It reveals our true heart. Fourth and last reason that it's scary. This verse is scary. Lord, 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 depart from me. I never knew you. It's scary because we we are all prone to sin. We all struggle with selfishness and pride. We we all have different issues in our life where, where we gravitate away from God. And that's scary. Because we have to keep reanalyzing and we've got we've to self-evaluate a little bit. We have to look inside our own hearts and see what are we living for? What's really motivating us? What are we really wanting from life? And I think a lot of it is when it comes to the sin that's inevitably in our lives, it's how do we respond to it? When we sin, are, are, are we broken before God? Are our hearts broken that we've wandered from Him? Do we repent? Do we determine that with His help we won't do it again? Do we deal with our sin? Or 
Have we become so callous to our sin that it's just the normal part of our life and we just go on in it no longer thinking it's that big of a deal because we know Christ forgives us. He died for our sins. But when we start shifting in our thinking to think this is not a big deal anymore, it could be revealing that our foundation is not on the rock. We gravitate toward the wide road saying, hey, all I need for salvation is that one-time one decision because then after that one-time decision, I don't really have to take Jesus' commands so seriously anymore. And Jesus is saying, that's wrong. It's popular in Christian culture, but it's wrong. And we're so tempted to give God a little peace of our lives and, and reserve other parts of our lives for us to control so we don't have to go through the, the guilt and the, the brokenness of knowing that we've, we just kind of pull this, but this is our stuff. And we keep God out of that part of our life and we reveal our true foundation. Now, please understand Jesus is not saying that somehow through our works we earn our salvation. Or without works we can't have salvation. That's not the point. What Jesus, the whole point of Christ and his teaching, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' commentary on the law. And he's saying, you guys who have gone to the extreme to keep the law, you don't understand. You've only scratched the surface. You have not plumbed the depth of the law. You don't get it. It's not in your heart. It's surface actions. And he's revealing to us, none of us can keep the law. We cannot do it. We are incapable And the right result of that is that in our sinfulness, we would be separated from God forever. But Jesus is telling us, it, you think you're keeping the law, you Pharisees, you're really not keeping the law. But I'm keeping the law, Jesus is saying. I'll be the one without sin. And the only one qualified to be your substitute to die for your sin. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is coming. He's laying this foundation in his most famous sermon. He is not saying that somehow by our good works we can contribute to our own salvation. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, no, it's impossible for us to do that. But once we're truly a believer, then it will show up in our lives. We will want to out of gratitude because we know that we couldn't do it. Out of gratitude because he loved us that much. He gave his life for us that we would want to follow him, desire to follow him, try to follow him, work to follow him. Not to earn salvation as a result of our true salvation. They would change our lives forever. That's what we keep saying we want to help people do. What? Discover truth. 
Then decide on Jesus. And then how do we know they've, someone's truly decided on Jesus? Because third, they will demonstrate change in their life. And beyond that, part of that is that they will deploy for others. They will do something. They will become active for God. How we live matters is what he's saying. So if we're prone to sin, what do we do? Well, we must hear. Jesus is saying this is how he wraps it. We must hear and obey. We must hear what he says and do it. And I got to tell you, some have only an intellectual commitment and they only enjoy Jesus in small doses and they keep him out of other parts of their lives. Where true believers want to give him every part of our lives. Maybe this is true of you. Sometimes when I'm praying, a lot of times I pray right before I go to bed. I crawl into bed. I'm not saying you do it then, but whenever you pray, do you ever do this? And, and after I crawl into bed, I'm kind of done praying, but then I'll be thanking God for all the blessings. You know, this is what we do at Thanksgiving, and we do this a lot. We thank God for all the blessings that he has poured out and dumped on our lives, right? And then I'll think this, and probably a lot of you do too. I'll think, God, you've given me so much. God, if I was laying here in just a hole in the dirt and not a, a, a nice bed and a nice bedroom and a nice house with cars in the driveway, if I was just laying curled up in a, in a depression in the ground, in a cave or the bank of a river or in a cell block somewhere, I want to still praise you for your goodness because you saved me. And that's better than anything that I can have. If I didn't have my family, my greatest blessing on this earth, that I would still praise you because you love me and you have gave me salvation. Not that I deserve it. I do not deserve any of it. You graciously reach down and love me as an unlovable person, but you love me. Because I don't want to serve God in an exchange. I don't ever want to be thinking, God, I'll keep serving you because you bless me in my life. Salvation in itself, no matter how my circumstances in life are, salvation in itself is the greatest blessing that I can ever hope to dare for, dare hope for. Salvation is the ultimate, and I'm the least deserving of it. If he bestows that on me, if he loves me that way, if he had given his life for me in that manner... It's enough because it's everything. And our circumstances in this life, they're just temporary. Jesus is forever. God wants a relationship with us. 
be careful that you don't play games with God. Don't go through the motions to maybe ease your conscience a little bit, but not allow God to capture and own your heart. That's what he wants from us, just our life, just our love. And for us to love God back, part of that shows up in obedience to him. And if we are callous to that, we should be concerned. We should be scared because of Jesus' own words. It's interesting because he starts the sermon, the first thing he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. I, I love that. He starts out, first words, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. Blessed are the, we, but we have to see it. We have to know it. And when we know that, we know that we can't save ourselves that we can't do enough for God to somehow counter our sin and our rejection and our rebellion. It's all grace. It's all his love for us. But we have to respond to it. We cannot save ourselves. We, we can't do it religiously by doing a bunch of religious things. We can't save ourselves by staying away from religion and doing our own thing. We cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can. How can you know for sure? Remember Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? How do we know for sure? We should see obedience in our life. We should see ourselves doing things we wouldn't normally do because Jesus wants us to do them. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say, Jesus says. Then in John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christians cannot enjoy living on the broad path and expect to end up in eternity with Jesus. That's what he's telling us. There's two contrasting responses to a sermon. We hear what he says, but it doesn't go all the way deep in our hearts. We don't give up control to him. Or we hear what he says, and we act on what he's told us. Only an obedient lifestyle is compatible with true Christianity. I'm not, not trying to scare you. Not trying to frighten you. I'm trying to warn you. Because I don't want anybody that comes to grace somehow think that they're true believers and that they fit in and that everything, and you probably do fit in. 
but you've never really intended to give God control of your life. Jesus is not just warning us here. He's inviting us into relationship with him. He's asking us, inviting us to repent, to turn from living our way, to sincerely follow him. That's all he wants. And how obedient we are after that, it, the, our salvation does not depend on that, but it does reveal whether we truly have salvation or not, just between you and God. Right now, I'd like everyone to, to bow your heads. And I, I want to just give you a time to think through this. And Tim already gave you a time to think through this at communion, but just wanted to hit this a little harder as we're in this last section as Jesus closes this most famous sermon that is so easily misunderstood mainly maybe because people don't actually read his sermon they don't hear it and just allow God to search your heart his spirit to search your heart try to determine are you putting his words into action is there evidence in your life just between you and God or out of gratitude you want to follow him you desire to follow him you don't do it perfectly I'm, I'm not saying that but, but when you mess up, when you go a different way, you're broken, you're repentant, you're asking God for help. And that's the only way we cannot sin in any given area is ask God for help because we aren't strong enough. But God is. If you're overtaken in a sin, first make sure you're a believer, then ask God specifically for help every day. Not just generally, specifically. Ask him to help you in that area every day, and he will. And he'll strengthen you. Well, our heads are bowed. Uh, if you feel that maybe you need to, to get this right with God, that maybe you've been living a lie or maybe never claimed to be a believer, but you know you need to get this right now. I want to just encourage you to turn your heart to God and, and to express that to Him. Something like this. Father God, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you came to die for me. for all my sin and I, I can be with you in eternity but God I want to make sure that my believing in you means that I'm giving control of my life to you that I'm recognizing you as my rightful king Lord that I want to follow you in every area of my life I'm, I'm not reserving any other areas I, I want everything under your control God, I'm broken of my sin. And Lord, 
If I'm not sure where I've been, I'm asking you now to come in into my life and help me as I turn my life towards you in desperation because I know I can't do it myself.